Hello and welcome back, listener. How are you doing? I hope you're keeping well. You are obviously listening to My Surrogacy Journey, the podcast season two. We're back for another incredible episode and you're going to really enjoy this one. Yes, you are. Hello, it's me again. It's Michael. And we are back together for another great episode. We're also back in the studio in London. Uh, More on that in a second. So thanks for downloading us again. And I'm hoping you are a regular listener and you have subscribed. But if you haven't, make sure you do. So if you loved season one, buckle up for a great episode. This is season two. Season two has been in the making for almost a year and we're really excited to be back recording it in the studio just for you. We also have a sponsor, Get Us Michael. Tell us more about this amazing Uh, sponsor. Of course I will. So it's Hearts and Essex Fertility Centre who were established in 1989 with an outstanding track record and have created over 7,000 babies as a result of their care over the last 34 years. I'm just surprised that 1989 is 34 years ago. It feels like it shouldn't be that long ago. Hearts and Essex Fertility Centre is a leading surrogacy clinic and was awarded Surrogacy Fertility Clinic of the Year in 2018 and 2022. It always feels amazing to be back in the studio talking to people in person. We get much more out of the podcast really? and for you as the listener having people here in person. Today you've got Michael and myself in the studio and we're joined by three amazing people and this topic is really close to everyone's heart. So today we're talking to Debbie Evans, Hayley Aldis and Kay King. If you follow us closely you will definitely have come across these names. You will indeed. This is going to be a great episode. So we already do a lot of work with these lovely women and their insights are always fascinating. Debbie Evans is our clinical lead at My Surrogacy Journey and she also works as the clinical director at Hearts and Essex Fertility Centre. She also works very closely with our surrogates and intended parents to understand their commitment to the programme. And she'll help them navigate through the entire process, ensuring everyone makes informed decisions for a successful outcome. Hayley Eldis is one of our surrogate coordinators at My Surrogacy Journey and is an experienced surrogate herself, having embarked on two journeys already. Hayley works closely with our surrogates to keep them informed of the whole process and will support our surrogates throughout the journey. Wes, tell us more about Kay. Kay King is our foundation director. She has a background in reproductive health and rights, charity leadership and is a skilled fundraising campaigner and a project manager for the charity sector work. Wow. Kay is currently on a surrogacy journey of her own, having matched with incredible pair of parents through my surrogacy journey. So it'll be really interesting to hear Kay's view on her recent journey and what that's been like managed through a particular clinic. Because yeah. that's what this episode is all about. We're going to be talking about the journey and what to look out for when you are embarking on treatment, either as an intended parent or as a surrogate. Because I think it's really important that intended parents understand the journey that surrogates go through totally. as well, so they can support their surrogate while they're on that journey. But I also think that if you are someone who's potentially wanting to be a surrogate, you fully understand that process because it is a really integral part of the journey and not understanding it is really going to cause some problems. Yeah, because there are some key things that we're going to talk about in this episode. We're going to be talking about abstaining from sex when you're a surrogate, when you're going through treatment. We're going to be looking at what that pathway looks like for a surrogate and just like you said 
let the intended parents and anyone else know what's involved in that journey. Yeah. But also if you're a surrogate, what does the medication like? What does the clinic process look like? Yeah. How many scans do I need? What does that do to me? What does that do to my relationship? How do I tell my family? Who do I tell? All of those questions are hopefully going to be answered in this particular topic. Without further ado, let's talk directly to our amazing guests. So hello, everyone. Thank you for being in the studio with us today. I'm really looking forward to this episode. Me too. There's so much experience and, and like talent on this sofa in front of us. So Debbie, why don't you just give us a quick overview of what's your name, where you come from? <laughs> All right, Scylla. <laughs> uh, hello, everyone. Um, I'm Debbie Evans. I'm currently the Director of Clinical Services at the Hearts and Essex Fertility Centre, but I've also just been appointed as the clinical lead for MSJ. Um, I do plan to retire at some point this year and then we'll be fully working with MSJ. Oh, we're going to keep you very busy, Debbie. Don't worry. I'm sure you will. <laughs> Kay, Kay, tell Kay. us about you. Hello, I'm Kay. Um, also a new appointment. I'm recently appointed to MSJ Foundation Director starting in September. Um, I've been working in reproductive health and rights for the last 15 years or so. I'm a mother of two and currently on a surrogacy journey for parents who I've matched with through MSJ. Perfect. Hayley, what about you? I am Hayley. I'm a gestational surrogate myself. Um, I've been on two journeys. First one resulted in a live birth, um, Betsy, who is now five. And I have been on another journey where we've sadly had two mid-trimester losses. So currently in limbo with that, but here to talk about my experiences. Thanks. Amazing. Right, let's dive into some questions then, Wes. Yeah, so let's let's go back to basics. So the listener is thinking, I want to be a surrogate. What are the things that they should expect from a clinic point of view let's let's start with you debbie so you know if someone's coming to you they want to be a surrogate what what should they expect from the clinic process let me start at the beginning again so they they will need to be prepared so we need to do some clinical observations assessments to make sure number one have they got a uterus that's fit for purpose and that can do the job that we need it to to do we need to look at the consents that they're signing up to so that they have all of the information around what that surrogacy journey might mean to them coming through from a clinical perspective. We need to manage their expectations because there is quite a commitment. Their IPs could be at the other end of the country and sometimes they might not have all of the support, so they need to know where they're going to get their support from. Commitment to the actual appointments. They need to turn up for those appointments because they're really important that we're monitoring throughout that process. And then counselling. As much as Mm -hmm. they might have already had counselling through the agency that they're with or, you know, in the past, they will need to have that again. And most clinics will do a counselling session with them and or their partner if they do have one. And then again with the intended parents so that we make sure that we're covering the whole intention for everyone involved in that partnership. So a massive commitment and assessment. And you talked about commitment really clearly and really loud there. I heard that. <laughs> what does that commitment look like? You know, how many appointments? What? How many days? What What does that look like? So I think sometimes people underestimate that level of commitment yeah. that's needed. When you become a surrogate or any patient coming through a clinic, you want to make it as easy as possible, that part of the journey. So, so go to a clinic that's going to be hopefully working with MSJ that, you know, we partner with, but also somewhere that's that you're going to be able to access easily because you will need to attend the clinic for the assessment appointments, for the consultation. Most can do those via Teams, but you need to make sure that you're in an appropriate place, that you're giving time to that consultation so that you can understand 
all of the clinical components of that. And then when actually physically attending the appointments that you attend for the scans, which are one or two while you're going through the stimulation phase and then the embryo transfer. Be prepared to have conversations with your intended parents about who wants to be at those appointments and who's going to be your support mechanisms. I get really upset when I just see a surrogate turning up on their own and they've got nobody around them because we want it to be a journey that you that you go through together. We want you to be all involved. But we do understand logistics can also be um, you know, a problem throughout, but that's why it's really important that you think about the clinic that you're going to, that it's going to be the most accessible for you so that you can be there and you can have the right support. Debbie, I often hear uh, some, of, some of the terms with the clinics about a dummy transfer. Tell me about a dummy transfer. So, we're not talking about a passerby here. <laughs> no. So we want to make sure some, sometimes um, women can have tricky uh, uteruses to get or oh, the cervicanal to get the catheter passed through. So if we recognise that and we'll know that from early scans or from medical histories that we take from our surrogates, it might mean that we want to do a transfer under conditions where we haven't got that live embryo and all the implications around that and all the stress around making sure that that embryo goes back into the right place. The last thing we want to do on the day of transfer is to have a very tricky problem where we're unable to pass a catheter. So a dummy transfer is when we want to make sure that we understand the anatomy of the cervix and the canal um, to be able to pass that catheter as smoothly as possible without any stress or discomfort for the surrogate. It's all about planning for success, isn't it, really? It's about making sure that everything's in order so that you can achieve a successful transfer. Exactly. When we either thaw or we've got that fresh embryo, we want to make sure that that embryo is going into the best possible place that it can do. So all of the components, the endometrium's in the best place, the access with the catheter is as best as it can be, and that everyone's there to support that surrogate on that most important day. And I'm going to jump in with one more question. And I've got oh, my God. Are you going to ever let six me Six pair of eyes looking at me. <laughs> like, but, Jesus. But, but, this uh, is the Wes show, everyone. This is Wes's podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I know that there are lots of conversations about optimum lining. Give us the fact. <laughs> so we have put back an embryo in a lining of six millimetres. I think that's the minimum that anyone would require because it's not just about the size of the endometrium. It's it's called trilamina and it's where we want to see three very distinct lines through that endometrium. So a triple line in layman's term. Um, so it's more about what that endometrium looks like rather than the thickness. So as long as you've got a minimum of six millimetres, preferably seven, that's the ideal. But we know that some women just won't, particularly if it's an unstimulated cycle. So they haven't produced an egg and sometimes the lining won't be as receptive to the uh, synthetic hormones that we're giving you. Um, so they're progging over, etc., to build that lining. Or if you're doing it in your natural cycle, we want to make sure that you've got the most optimum that you can. If it's below that, we can add in some extra estrogen so you can have patches, etc., to try and build it. And we might give you another week. But if at that point you still haven't built a nice lining and it doesn't just doesn't look nice when you're a sonographer, sometimes you go in and you just know that it's not receptive, it's not looking nice, then abandon that cycle because you don't want to thaw out a beautiful embryo and you haven't got the best place for that embryo to implant. And can the lining be too thick? It can, but um, we manage that again. If, if you become hyperactive, then again, we would probably abandon that cycle when it becomes over 
Um, we don't we don't want to be putting an embryo back into something that's not the best place. Michael, over to oh, you. Oh, hello. Okay, let's have a chat. Um, as a fairly new surrogate. Yeah. Chatting through. I feel old now. Ah, no, you're not old. <laughs> Hearing some of that about process and yeah. about, you know, what this journey means. Have there been any surprises to you from a clinical point of view in terms of what that journey has looked like, regardless of however many transfers someone may or may not be on, but just getting ready for treatment, has it been what you anticipated it would be? I'm not entirely sure that I went into it thinking so much about the clinical side that I've got a a failed expectation. Our journey with the clinic has been an interesting one, definitely. We actually changed clinics, but within the the same clinic group on our journey. So we've had a change of consultants. And it hasn't always been smooth. It hasn't always been smooth just for kind of lack of clarity on information on why we're abandoning cycles or what's going on in my body. I think probably some of my biggest shocks are being a entirely fertile woman going through then stimulated cycles. It very much changes your relationship with fertility and your own body. I've, I've mm-hmm. just been well, I'm in my fifth round of IVF in the last eight months. And this is as somebody who's, you know, had three normal pregnancies, fine, without assisted reproduction. So I think it's it is interesting to suddenly be in the environment of a clinic and going, oh, what are my needs for support in this? And and Hayley, from your point of view, so what was the clinical process like for for you? So I came to the clinic not having any background knowledge of surrogacy organisations, surrogacy groups. It was just a friend that had already used that clinic for her embryo um, creation. So come and have a chat, basically. So uh-huh. I was kind of cold to it. But it, it was really quite straightforward for me. It was a scan, a blood test, a consultation, counselling, a group counselling session, and then we were all systems go. So okay. it was quite nice and straightforward for me. Okay. Okay. Yes. Let's, let's just <laughs> pick up. Now, maybe tell the listener about your journey and how many cycles you've done. And then I'll ask you another question on the top of that. Yeah, that's no, that's, okay. that's fine. So we started IVF back in late August last year. Um, and our first cycle got abandoned because I needed to have a procedure just to remove some fluid from within my womb. I think I'm, Deb, I'm looking to Debbie as if she might know what that was. But um, yeah, I had to have a procedure. So we abandoned cycle one, cycle two. Um, what that looks like is, we, you know, we, we wait until I have my period and then we begin to build up the lining and then we have the embryo transfer. And then we're you know on supported meds for two weeks until we test. We have now been through five cycles, two which got abandoned, three which have resulted in embryo transfer. And yeah, I suppose from the amount of appointments, so I was just listening to Debbie go through what the the basic standard number of appointments is for a cycle going, oh yeah, plus that, plus that, plus that, because you also don't know what's going to occur. So there's such sensitivity to making sure the environment is completely right that there are things that in a non-assisted reproductive cycle you wouldn't you'd never even know you wouldn't know whether you had a slight um cyst on your ovaries you wouldn't know certain things you wouldn't know how thick your lining was when you're just going through non-assisted so the the hypersensitivity to that leads to additional blood tests or um there's been a couple of times where my progesterone hasn't quite been the level they've wanted on transfer day so they've asked me to come back three days later to have another blood test just to check it's okay i live in devon our clinic is in london um, I've probably been in, I would, I would average probably 10 appointments to clinic for each cycle that we've done. Wow. The expense of that 
goes to the intended parents, to the parents as well. So that's, you know, these are these are big considerations in choosing sure. a clinic. And then when you embarked on your first your first cycle and you were excited to get going, mm. how did you approach it and what was your expectation? Because obviously you're where you are now, but when you started it, it was your expectation was very different. And if someone's a first-time surrogate and listening to this podcast, what, how would you try and manage their expectation around yeah, all question. of those really different components and how you approach it from the start? Yeah, I was thinking about about this on the way down actually and and also kind of want to make a point that is really important which is that the experience of surrogacy both from a parent's point of view and a surrogate's point of view is wrapped up in a lot of compassion and care and a lot of respect from people and a lot of love from people encouragement from people people build up their support networks certainly within the agency with working with you guys there's been a lot of compassion-led care and I think that is brilliant you will not find that or we have not found that level of compassion-led care within a clinical experience. And I was dwelling on this on the way here today and thinking that's kind of okay as well because that you are going there for a clinical experience. So I think it's it's making sure as, from a surrogate's perspective that you can separate the two and lean in for the compassionate care. We haven't had compassionate-led care within our clinic. We've had clinical-led care, which has improved over the journey we've been on. Um, it wasn't great at the beginning and it has improved. I, I think having your own expectations of on a day that I go to clinic, am I going to feel considered and loved and nurtured? Probably not, but are you going to feel clinically respected given all the information that you need to have, able to take your time, etc.? In a utopic world, you would have both. And I, I honestly think that we don't have a clinic like that in the UK that mm-hmm. is combining those two things. I beg to differ. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for this. I honestly, I would be mortified and really upset if a surrogate said that around my clinic because I truly believe that at Hearts and Essex, we do deliver that service. Mm. And it's testament to the feedback that we get. And we do specific questionnaires to our surrogates and intended parents. And I don't get that feedback. So I'm, I'm really sad, that, sad you, that you're having yeah. that experience because it is a really incredible, special part of, of the fertility world that we live in. Um, surrogacy is second to none and and what everybody invests within within that partnership should all be feeling nurtured every single every single yeah. component and I'm really sad that you've had that experience but Kay what would you give what advice would you give to those behind you about how they should manage that process and how they should equip themselves with the kind of tools to be able to navigate through it and and make the best out of it I think it's a really challenging one. I mean, giving feedback and working closely with you guys at MSJ has been the biggest change because the care that we were getting originally was so far from what we're talking about. It has improved. We've now got continuity, so we, ha- which was a big lacking point of our, of our first two rounds because we had no continuity, and by which I mean we weren't seeing the same nurses or consultants or doctors for any appointments, so we had nobody who knew our story or situation. We have that now. That's improved. I still don't think we're anywhere near the compassion that Debbie's talking about that in, in our care. I think from a surrogate's perspective I would say have an awareness of what you're going to need it's so hard because I know you don't know what you're going to need but thinking about what that maybe looks like and communicating that to your consultant I think from a parent's point of view if it's possible visiting your clinic before you pay the costs of embryo transferring transferring your embryos to that clinic Uh which is costly 
Um, and once you've made that commitment, you probably don't want to have to pay that out again. And I think it's also okay to actually say, I would like a single point of contact, please. Yeah. I want to see the same nurse, ideally. I definitely want to make sure that my consultants, I don't have to keep explaining the fact that I'm a surrogate and these yeah. are my parents. And, you know, I not parents, but intended parents. <laughs> that would be a bit strange. I've said that sentence so many times. <laughs> not my parents. <laughs> the parents. <laughs> but this is the expectation of how we would like to be treated. And there's a lot of money and emotion changing hands here so if you wouldn't mind this is kind of what I would like our journey to look like what's your motto change the landscape yeah that needs to be at the core of what we're doing within Mm. the fertility sector Uh, not just outside of that and I agree but do you know what Kay's experience we get it said to us frequently don't we full disclosure we do the, the feedback that we get through Hearts and Essex is always incredible and I think that shows in the performance of the clinic But disappointingly so, the industry does need to listen to improving continuity of care and information, whether it's the correct invoicing, which seems to be a problem across the industry, whether it's the single point of contact that a lot of people want or having to re-explain the situation. The pricing and how the transparency transparency of that pricing is and how people can understand what what's applicable to them and what isn't it's and sometimes the simplicity of an explanation as to why you're seeing the person you are seeing on an appointment would would help so I will often you know we just described how many times I've been to the clinic which probably averages around 80 in the last year I (gasps) there I've never face to face met our current consultant but there are other people who have met several times. So just sort of from a clinic point of view, just considering letting you know when you come in today, this is who you're going to see. I've never known who's doing my embryo transfers until the day that I've rocked up. It would just be a useful thing if the clinics could build in saying, when you come for your embryo transfer on Tuesday, it's going to be this consultant doing it. So that you know who you're going to be in a room with having that very intimate experience. Um, (laughs) Must feedback, Kay. Yeah. It's really important because we learn from clinics, we learn. I think anecdotally as well, just to add on to that, um, IPs will often look at a clinic that might have amazing stats Mm. and actually, yeah, they might be a great clinic, but they're not that experienced with surrogacy. It's a whole other dynamic. Mm. Um, Totally, totally. So just taking that into account as well. It's not all about the stats. Let's dive into a really prominent question, which I know often bounces about a lot in the independent sector. I'm going to come over to you, Hayley, first, because I know that you represent and you know you're part of my surrogacy journey but you also represent the independent sector as well i do class myself as an independent surrogate so there we go so one of the big things that i see talked about not personally i anecdotally is natural cycle versus medicated Mm -hmm. cycle now Haley, give us give us (laughs) give us your view and give us flavor of some of the things that you see on the independent group i've done both um and they've both been successful in that i've had positive pregnancy tests from both Often the argument would be that because we're surrogates and we don't have our own fertility issues, we should just opt for um, a natural cycle. We don't need the meds, what have you. But the level of control that the meds give you, especially if you're travelling distances like Kay has been, there are pros to it as well. You often get um, the side effects of meds all highlighted as all being really negative, all being awful. You don't need these, they're horrible to you. And yeah, a lot of them are. They don't, <laughs> Kay knows that very well at the moment. But they're not <clears throat> all bad. I really loved being on estrogen. It made me feel empowered and strong and feminine and, well, really great on it. It's not all bad, um, but 
so often people just jump on it as all the downsides, which is really, you know, look, get the full picture and look at all, all the different angles. Well, let's hear about all those different angles <laughs> from a clinical point of view. Let's hear the fact versus the fiction from our very own Debbie. Come on, tell, tell us. The, so tell us the... Now you've really put me on the spot. So from a clinic perspective, and it isn't around just manipulating a cycle to make it work for the clinic. You know, the clinic I work at, we're a seven day a week service. And any clinic you go to, please make sure that they provide that service, particularly if you're embarking or considering natural cycle, because it won't work if they're not open at the weekends and you can't get there. But stimulated will always give you that element of control. And particularly, you know, as Kay alluded to, she lives in Devon and she's got to get to London. If you're ovulating and you've got to get to your clinic, you're going to be in trouble if you get stuck on the train or you can't get there that day and you miss and you've got to go the next day. So it is all about the control from a clinic perspective because we can create the cycle that we need to create for all of the partners involved Mm -hmm. and make sure that everyone, you know, if your IPs live in Scotland and they can't get there for the embryo transfer because you've ovulated and you've got to get there and they haven't been able to get facilities to get themselves down there um, is really, really difficult to manage. It's much, much easier to manage on a stimulated cycle. And as Hayley said, just as long as you have been managed and you have the correct expectations of what to expect when you start on those medications, what are the side effects? How are they going to affect me? What am I going to feel like? How long have I got to be on them for? Talk to your clinic. Make sure that you have good understanding. But stimulated is always going to be better than natural. And I sometimes uh, have conversation with attending parents and they don't understand the difference and the surrogate is would prefer a medicated or a, a natural cycle versus medicated. And what I advise is as a collective group, talk about what everyone's feeling you know like sometimes it might be that a set of intended parents have a really low embryo number and then uh, a natural cycle might be more of a risk in in those scenarios so I think you need to look at everyone's case individually and look at all of the different components take the surrogates view take the intended parents views and potential anxiety listen to your clinic and then make a decision that works for everyone there's a kind of partial medicated as well, isn't there, with no stimulation, but then progesterone support. And yeah, so you, you can always you can find have, a bit of a middle yeah, you ground. Can, but, you know, man, managing that first part to make sure that, number one, that you're going to produce it. So if you're doing it natural, you have to phone your clinic when you start the day one of your period. Um, if that's Friday night late, you can't contact your clinic until Monday morning. So you're panicking, thinking, OK, what do I need to be doing in this time? It's, it is actually OK. And you ring the clinic on Monday and hopefully they've got a scan appointment that you can then fit in around about between day eight and day 10 of that cycle so that they can monitor what's going on. Well, I can't get there that day. There's no way because I'm at work all day and I'm not going to. So already you're opening yourselves up to not essentially failure, but complications because we don't know how you're going to ovulate or when you're going to ovulate within that cycle. And if you can't get to the clinic for that initial scan, the clinic can't manage you. And, you know, you may well have to abandon that cycle. Mm -hmm. And then that's upset and concerns for everyone involved. Intended parents are, you know, disappointed. The surrogate's upset because she hasn't been able to commit to that. I talked earlier about commitment to the cycle. It's really, really important. Mm -hmm. One of my natural cycles, we had so many scans because my lining just wasn't developing as they wanted it to and we were back every pretty much every day at one point wow. and then they abandoned the cycle in the end anyway. oh, really so much effort that was then lost okay so 
I think people underestimate the commitment. And I know, Debbie, we've yeah. talked about commitment, but it's such a dynamic process, isn't yeah. it? And it's there's no like one size fits all. No. And you have to react to what the clinicians are seeing in front of them, which, like you just said, you know, day after day after day of scans, you know, that's what in- intended parents and surrogates have to prepare for. And in the intro to this particular podcast, I talked about intended parents understanding this because if they understand the process, they yeah. can support their surrogate better. They can yeah. have more empathy of what the surrogate's <clears throat> going, going through, through and, and can also manage their own expectations and, and anxiety because they understand the process and what potentially is happening. And I think as well, you probably do underestimate as a surrogate in the beginning how, certainly in your case, Kay, how often are you going to be seen by these people? And, you know, if you are permanently employed or even if you're not permanently employed the commitment of of just knowing what's to come and just knowing the flexibility that you need to give I think for some people they don't probably understand what that commitment to the process looks like when you have lack of knowledge on either the intended parents or the surrogates behalf you'll have breakdowns in those relationships invariably we'll get calls from intended parents saying you know is there a problem with the surrogate you know, they haven't, they're not going to turn up for the scale. They can't go to the scan on Friday. Is that going to make a difference? Yes, it will make a difference. And yeah. then, so then now they're upset with their surrogate. The surrogate is committed to whatever she's committed to for that day. So she's now upset because she wasn't able to take yeah. her part in And it just causes this minefield of, whereas if you're on that stimulated and the surrogate rings and says, look, I can't make it on Friday, say, fine, it's no problem. You stay on the drugs and we'll see you on Monday or see you on Saturday, whatever day. So you have much more manoeuvrability within the cycle. Nobody gets upset. Yeah. And then you explain it. How many times have I explained the female reproductive cycle to a same-sex male couple who mm-hmm. have no idea about what the female has to go through and what has to happen at each point? And it's imperative. Each point is imperative. Yeah. And it has to happen in exactly the way that nature intends and... Whether you have a natural or a stimulated, it has to follow nature. Mm-hmm. And you, so you can't stop. If you're on Proginova, which is the estrogen tablet we give you to stimulate you to your body thinking that it's producing an egg, you're not actually create, making the egg in that month, um, but your body is fooled into thinking that. We, we need to make sure that, that that is all correct on the same day that you're having exactly the same and it follows the, the journey of the egg. So a minimum of 14 days. So if a clinic says to you, no, you're okay to go and you've had eight days worth of Proginova, your body's not following that same pattern. Mm -hmm. It has to follow the pattern for it all to click and work. Mm -hmm. Debbie, I hear sometimes about remote scanning for surrogates. Is that ideal? How does that work? Yes, most most clinics are happy to facilitate scans being done in other parts of the country as long as we get a viable report that gives us all the information that we need for us to make then that clinical decision. But it is tougher because you're relying on a third party to do a scan for you that you are then going to put an embryo or potentially put an embryo back in on. So if, so if you get a clinic that rings and said, yeah, the endometrium's 8.5 millimetres, all looking lovely, you prepare, you start the progesterone when you need to, and then the patient comes in on the day of transfer, you say, well, it's 5.5. That's not what it was, and it doesn't look anywhere near like what they're suggesting it's an area I wish so cool. I wish clinics nationally would agree to yeah. improve is in, into you know into support for scans and blood tests. So we've had a number of occasions where, in fact, probably probably the best example is when I knew I wasn't pregnant after an embryo transfer. So I had done plenty of home testing and I I was very sure that I wasn't pregnant and they were all negative tests. 
but they won't stop the medication until I've had my beta at clinic. So I was trying to find out because I had a very busy week that week whether I could have my beta test done just locally and you know, clinic advised we could do that at my GPs. Well, we did that at GPs, but then little did I know that the GPs would send that to the hospital. That would be a oh, wow. five-day wait before they sent it to the hospital. So then so we're in this situation where I'm frustrated with my GP and frustrated with the clinic um, and still taking these blinking meds for a pregnancy that I haven't got. So I think, yeah, just... But certainly where we are, there are, I did lots of looking around for, for clinics that would do intertransfer scans from one clinic to the next. And they're just not there. You know, it's not a service that has been. We've just started you know, at MSJ developed. looking at working with the partner clinics that we have to just do some of the pre-testing that we need to do through. And even that's been a minefield. And these are partner clinics to yep. just get the support to help us do some of the pre-testing. You know, we were using remote tests. We were using online tests. They're not accurate enough and they're giving us false yeah. um, results. But when you go back to the pregnancy tests, the reason why we won't stop your medication is because you can't, you can't have a false positive, but you can have, have a, a false, false negative. negative. Yeah. And the minute you stop that medication, remember, you haven't, you haven't produced the egg, you will, that pregnancy will stop. If you stop the support, it will stop. And and it may well be that you have got that false negative and you have actually got a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. But the minute you stop the medication, that's it. Yep. It's over. Oh, dear, this is, I knew this would be. So it's always interesting yeah. when it forget <laughs> clinical. Um, any surprises from either of you two from a medication point of view? Was there any... Now, we don't want to scare this lovely listener that wants to potentially be a surrogate, but is there anything to prepare yourself for when when injecting or when I, I would have classed myself as needle phobic before okay. my very first round of IVF um, and I remember getting the needle shaking drawing up the fluid um, and then pinching my inch and injecting and I ended up on the floor I didn't pass out but very nearly did, did you? <laughs> but the next day I was fine so yes it was scary yes it was daunting but once I'd got over that fear and realized that no it didn't hurt I did it I can manage it it was absolutely fine and I never had a moment like that. Okay, again, so. good. that's good to know. <laughs> Kay, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a big commitment doing the, the medication and you do, yeah, I'm covered in bruises as we speak and um, I've definitely learned better parts of my tummy and worse parts of my tummy. Um, there are a number of other symptoms that are, you know, you'd have no idea about the amount of bloating that you get with um, taking progesterone, which, you know, has this nice cruel irony of making you look nine months pregnant when you're not pregnant. I think my biggest learn or bit of advice as a fertile woman who's had three pregnancies would be that you've kind of just got to let go of that body reading that you're very capable of doing. So I know how to read when I am pregnant. I Three times when I have been pregnant, there's been this, you know, textbook, little bit of implantation cramping, little bit of implantation bleed. Blah, blah. So when you then begin to look at the symptoms that you get from a stimulated cycle, which mimic a lot of those it's so confusing. You've got to take one hat off and put a different one on and go, you know. That's really good advice, actually, I think, because it's you are, they're two very different. Yeah. So every single symptom that I would associate with early pregnancy, I currently am having, but I am on a lot of progesterone. So you've kind of just got to go abandon all knowledge and just touch. Trust tests and trust know, the process. Tests. Like yeah. you don't believe your own body, you don't I, believe what you're feeling. Which is ironic because I've, I often describe this journey as being, you know, the time in my life where I've had the most body autonomy and I'm yeah. making all these <laughs> grand decisions. I'm like, I've got no idea what sort of what, what doing, but I'm loving it. I've got faith in it. Though. I've yeah, got, got faith. faith. <laughs> <laughs> she says, no crying. <laughs> no, she's and not. talk to your clinic. Always talk to your clinic. If you don't sit at home worrying, I know we have all these fancy apps that give us all the <laughs> extra information to support patients going through their journeys. 
but talk to your clinic. Honestly, if you if you're sitting at home worrying, you're worried. So ring us. Mm-hmm. That's clear. Yeah, definitely communicate with your clinic. When you're going through treatment, you are incredibly fertile, and there's a reason why there's the clinics are very much abstained from any sex whilst you are going through treatment because all sorts is happening with your body. How do you approach that conversation with surrogates, Debbie? What do you what's what's the what do you say? Oh, having that sex conversation is um, it, it comes easy to us now within the within the clinical setting because we have to have those transparent talks. We need to make sure that everybody knows what they need to be doing at whatever point in the cycles. We don't want any gametes that shouldn't be where they should be at any points in the cycles. We need to make sure that we keep the environment in the safest possible place in readiness for that embryo to go back. So we, we have to have those conversations. We have to make sure that, that you do have good understanding of what, what, what can be done and what can't be. Mm-hmm. And my surrogacy journey offers uh, and some voucher to help you navigate through that okay. particular part of your journey. When we decided to build that element into membership benefits, we spoke to a number of surrogates. I think, Hayley, you were one of them in the yeah, very early was, days. Yeah. And it was something that I personally felt, you know, there should be no shame in providing someone with anything that would satisfy them throughout that period of not having sex with their partner. And it was kind of mocked a little bit, I think. And what I'm really proud of, of all of our surrogates, is that I think they all take it, they all take it <laughs> because they can see the absolute importance of self-pleasure, pleasuring their partner, whatever it might be. They've got to maintain their relationship if they're in one with their partner throughout this process. And that can sometimes be difficult. Yeah. And I think whatever you need to do to keep everyone happy throoughout this process is, is And okay. especially yourself then. But it also kind of lightens it as in you can have that conversation with your IPs as a bit of a laugh and a joke, but at least you've then got the in as yeah, well. So absolutely. It doesn't need to be embarrassing. No, not at all. I think I've, there's also something from a clinic perspective of being very clear about what I'm listening to this going, there's, there's again a lacking of information. So I'm a queer woman. I was a single queer woman at the point at which I received my love honey voucher. Thanks very much. You know, just standard <laughs> shopping. Um, <laughs> and I am now in a relationship with a with a man. So it's... It's also interesting that piece of advice around having sex. You know, it was very easy at the beginning to go, cool, fine. Not really on the cards at the moment. And then obviously I've, I've got into a new relationship and it is a relationship in which we're talking about penis and vagina sex, which is very different to are we talking about are you able to have an orgasm whilst you're going through this? Because there's also all this information around post-embryo transfer, don't have an orgasm, do have an orgasm. Orgasms are great. They're the worst thing in the world, you know, and this information there. So from a clinical perspective, knowing the sexual sexual orientation, relationship status of the person you're talking to and how you communicate about what sex should and shouldn't be being had is also really important. Correct. Really important. There we go. And you thought stuff would come out that we just didn't expect. And this is exactly <laughs> this is why, why this is very conversational podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. And it takes us in the direction that we weren't anticipating always, but really glad to be there. Again, question for Kay and Hayley. The importance of a surrogate having total autonomy of their body. I'm looking at you first, Kay, because <laughs> I know this is your topic that we love talking about and the work that you've done previously. Yeah. 
let's educate us all. So, yeah, I mean, everybody should have full autonomy of their bodies. Surrogate or not surrogate, we all should have full autonomy of our bodies. And I think that there is a really interesting line that happens in surrogacy because there is the provision of something through your body for somebody else. I've begun talking about that more recently as purposing my body which I'm really I'm quite enjoying that language that I have a body that has a certain purpose and that I'm applying it in this way at this time you know I've used my body for the reproductive journey that I wanted to go on for building my own family that's very definitely complete and I still have a functionality within my body that I would like to utilize for a purpose I feel absolutely like that is a a choice and a decision that I have come to on my own there are stages and points within the reproductive process in surrogacy where you feel like you are not in control Mm -hmm. whether that is to do with the clinic whether that's to do with an abandoning cycle whether that's to do with something that's happened or grown in your body you know there are there are times where you do not feel in control and I think that that is very different to feeling do I have autonomy over the decisions as to when we're choosing to take this cycle, when I'm choosing to go on the next cycle, when I'm choosing to have a break, all of those things. Yeah, I loved that. Say it again there. Purposing. Yeah. Purposing your body. Mm. That's so... Quite nice, isn't it? Yeah. I've never, I've never heard you say that before. No. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's interesting to then look at other things in life as a comparison for people considering surrogacy. Where else in life do I use my body for dual purpose? Oh, wow. And there are plenty of ways. So you know, many. It doesn't take that much imagination to go. There are different ways we use our bodies for different purposes. And, and it takes away that idea, I think, of... Oh my gosh! Isn't she going to get attached to the baby? I'm not making. I'm not making a baby for me. Or isn't she getting exploited? No, no, I'm not. Um, and you know, it's it's these kind of if you can think about purposing and, and really how we make choice I in that love way. That phrase yeah. that is just chef's kiss. Great, mm-hmm. thank you, Hayley, and you. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about my clinic experiences, and I think second journey, especially where I'd been more experienced with the clinic at this point. I was almost able to handhold my IPs through that journey. Mm-hmm. And having been there, done that, if you like, I felt as if I were leading the way, whereas often IPs that have come to IVF and then surrogacy um, afterwards know more about it than a surrogate. So they kind of lead the journey. But on my second journey, I was able to lead it. And that felt really empowering and good for me. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Love it. From from a clinic perspective, I've, I've listen to both of you and both lovely fantastic but they're from from the intended parent perspective when it's a heterosexual couple that have been on journeys they come with all the knowledge and they think that they've got the control and they want to manage the, their surrogate in the way that they want to manage the surrogate mm-hmm. so we have to educate them to, mm-hmm. to help them understand that this person has got a say in all of this and it needs to be an informed journey that you work on together um, same-sex males will will most definitely let the surrogates rule the roost because they think, well, you're the woman, you know what you need to do and away you go and the clinic's going to look after you. So the clinic needs to have good understanding of what partnership is coming through their doors yeah. and how they're going to manage them totally. um, and make and make sure that there is autonomy for all parties, that you all have a little bit of a say. Um, and if there's something that's whatever it might be displeasing in any way, that you talk about it and that you do up front have ideas of how you're going to manage that yeah because it'll go wrong if you don't but again it's like one of our guiding principles it's all about balance it's about everyone yeah. getting everything that they need from from the journey and Correct. surrogates yeah. getting their bit ips getting their bit whether that's educated or not it's about getting everyone but it shouldn't be difficult level. though should it because it be because difficult. we should all be 
sort of self-advocating this sort of stuff. You know, this shouldn't be brand new information to someone. Because Were you able to talk to your surrogate? Yeah, we... But I think that's because we took so long getting to know Caroline. We we had nine months of building that relationship before we set foot into a clinic. So we really did. And and there were some things that she was more comfortable with than others. And we, we did let her, it was her body and we let her take the lead. But she also understood that it was also a shared yeah. pregnancy. You know, we were sport with Caroline. You know, she's been amazing. But we always had that open dialogue. And I think that's kind of what, we encourage and we advocate other teams to have. Let's talk about consents before we come to a close, Debbie, because I know that consents are obviously a really important part of a journey to give everyone the legal protection that they need. Just just give someone who doesn't understand oh, consents wow. a bit of an overview. <laughs> and it, like, let's not I'll go war it, and so peace. I'll take a big breath. Yeah, no, I won't go war and peace. Con- consents can be the nemesis within our fertility clinics. However, they have a very key purpose because... They are concerned with the gametes, so the eggs and the sperm and the resulting embryos. And we in the clinic need to have clear instructions about what we're going to do with those gametes. So the eggs and the sperm, how we're going to put them together. And once we've got that embryo, what is going to happen to that embryo? Who has consent over that future embryo? So without the consents in place, there's going to be wooliness all over the place. You need you need to have clear the laboratory needs to have clear direction on the day that they've got those eggs and sperm. Whose are they? Where are they going to? Where are they going to be banked? In whose name are they connected to? Because I'm I'm not going to go into all of that today, but there's minefields within our electronic patient data systems that we have that, that don't connect all the dots, that do not connect surrogacy as easily as you think. There's ways around it all. But it has to be very, very clear. And that's why consent is there. And it needs to make, we need to identify and make sure that all parties make informed consent decisions so that they have all of the information so that they clearly know because these could connect to parenthood in the future. And if we get them wrong at clinic level, then you can have a minefield of issues when it comes to parenting. And that's exactly where they should be done, the clinic. Yes. At the clinic. Yeah. I would I'd strongly suggest getting a tattoo of the intended parents' passport number, date of birth. <laughs> just at the beginning of Five the process. That's moving quite nicely on to some key advice from each of you. So before we close, Hayley and Kay, for our lovely listener that is a surrogate that is now tuned in, you're in their head and their ears. Hayley, what's your piece of advice would you give to a new surrogate? Same as always, just take your time. I think what we've just spoken about there, about um, kind of almost the, the control and the power and being on the same page, take your time, really get to know each other, intended parents and surrogates, and know that you're aligned on this journey. Uh-huh. Because I think you're going to be having some really intimate conversations that I don't think you ever expected to be Absolutely. having. So having that relationship <laughs> is really important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally. And Kay? I think probably from a, for a surrogate's perspective, separate your fertility to, from your surrogacy mentally would probably be my advice. So, and you know, that will impact on your relationship with the clinic as well. I think being able to go into this journey, not thinking of yourself necessarily as a fertile or infertile person, but as a surrogate and, and just shifting into thinking about this is a brand new experience. A lot of, you know, what I've learned or seen in my other journey through reproduction don't apply here, maybe until the point of pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And Debbie, what advice would you give from a clinical point of view to someone considering being a support. surrogate? 
biggest thing, support. If um, if we have partnerships come into the clinic and they're not aligned and they don't have the right infrastructure around them, particularly if it's a single surrogate, you need to make sure that they've got the right support on that and it's informed support so that they can give the right advice to each other. Mm-hmm. Have a good agency that's going to give you the right advice um, from a legal but medical, all of those perspectives so that you can pull your journey all together in the right way. Perfect. Thank you so much for another fascinating episode on our season two podcast. And what was your favourite bit, Wes? What have you learnt? My head's blown, actually. There's no favourite bit per se, but there's just, I mean, I knew it all, but it's just hearing it from these amazing people in front of me is is always uh, amazing to hear. So I think for me, definitely the eye opener was communicate with your clinic and advocate for that care and don't be afraid to to ask if something doesn't feel right or if you feel like you could do something locally or that's going to or if you've got a query just, just don't be frightened to speak kind of, up to speak up and and get that get that information so don't forget if you need your podcast fix we're back every monday proudly sponsored by hearts and essex fertility center one of the top performing fertility clinics in the uk and has some of the best success rates in the east of england if you want to find out more about My Surrogacy Journey, then please head over to our website, which is www.mysurrogacyjourney.com or find us on Instagram at official My Surrogacy Journey. If you like this episode, then you can subscribe to the series and we will have another episode coming out next week. Thanks for listening. We have been your My Surrogacy Journey podcast hosts. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.